Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Frontside Podcast, episode 62. My name is Charles Lowell. I'm a developer here at the Frontside, and I'm here today with Jeffrey Cherwadi and Robert DeLuca, also developers here at the Frontside, and uh, we're going to do a little bit of navel-gazing today. We're just going to kind of talk about how we roll and, and who we are, and because there have been a lot of conversations uh, about that as we've kind of been, you know, we've we've had a couple of different projects come in that uh, use different tool sets, and so what is it about us that kind of is constant, and what is it about us that changes? Uh, and so, yeah, I just wanted to talk a little bit about that. The core idea is about UI. Uh, the shop has always been about UI. Um, and I'm curious for you guys, what does what does UI mean to y'all? The front end of the front end. <laughs> That's a loaded. That's question. That's a loaded question. Okay, now let's 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 step back a little bit from that, because you know we've been in business for a long time, and right now we're doing mostly like Ember, a little React. Uh, before that, we were doing all Ember. Before that, we were doing mostly Rails. Before that, we were actually doing a little bit of WX Windows stuff. And before that, we were actually doing stuff in Java. But all of it was kind of fell under the rubric of UI, user interface. Uh, and so, like, what, what is constant? I mean, those are some radically different tools. And so, you know, when you look back and you, th- you think, my goodness, what could possibly connect those things that I just listed? But I think that there is. I think there is a common thread. And so I wanted to explore that a little bit. The common thread, I guess, at the simplest level is always that there, in a lot of programming, you're dealing with the interface to the end user of your code is simply text. Mm-hmm. It's a call and response, or mm-hmm. it's uh, they're consuming a library of, of yours that's where they actually, the code is the end product. And what we focus on instead is the actual graphic interface that the end user mm-hmm. that that's the end product of, of what we build is is the interface right is the the graphic representation instead of a code or a text based interface i'm curious like how much in terms of all the software that gets written how much do you think because i think that's a key distinction right there's certain software that interfaces with other software the connections are other software and there's a very unique set of problems uh when dealing with that but there is also a different class of software where the, it's interfacing on one side with other software, but on the other, it's interfacing with human beings. And like, well, how much do you think, like what proportion of software that gets developed, how much of it is actually interfacing with human beings and how much is actually interfacing with other software? I think that most software developers underestimate how much other human beings <laughs> are interfacing <laughs> with what they're building. Uh, even if it is a simple like HTTP protocol rest type of interface you know, like it's still being used by human beings even if it's human beings writing code to hit it that's true <laughs> there's yeah. definitely like a whole meta level and, and that's developer like, experience versus yeah. user experience yeah but uh but it's true I, there's probably very few pieces of software that don't actually where the ergonomics aren't important to actual people that's true but i'm thinking more <laughs> so there definitely is like a metal area. what you're getting at is that there's typically much more code underneath the service than there is that actually is visible to a human mm-hmm. that makes it all work exactly yeah yeah the the part that's lying just beneath the surface is an ocean in of itself i would say it certainly seems like it because that's the ocean we swim in and it seems vast at times so yeah where where does that ui stop at what point does it stop becoming UI engineering and becomes more like API side or server side? 
obviously you can say like right when you start talking to an API, that's the end of it. But all of the code that goes on on the front end, like people refer to this as the front end of the back end, right? Mm-hmm. Like all of that code that is just there to get data and then massage that data. So then somebody can go and present it to the user. Is that all UI yeah. development? It's gotten a lot murkier in the yeah, past three years. Yeah, it has gotten murkier because the thing is, is the, the way we structure our server technologies are changing so that they can support various interactions. So, you know, for example, you know, one thing that springs to mind is having, you know, kind of treating the data that we have inside of our client, uh, you know, like and I'm thinking of a browser tab, for example, just one browser tab, one browsing session. You know, you, you load data from the server and you write data back to the server. But what we're seeing is in, that degrades the UI experience if you treat it just like that. And so there's kind of, I feel like the general trend is to treat the data that's housed in that browser tab as merely one kind of partial replica of some distributed data set that's, you know, being <laughs> replicated across, you know, a whole bunch of nodes where, you know, your storage nodes are one of those things. The nodes that other people uh, are might be using and participating in this application are other nodes, and then you know that one browser tab is itself it's a node in this kind of um, you know distributed database. But that's crazy because you know that's a lot of kind of what you would consider classical server work, but it's to get around the fact that you know application state is updating and changing rapidly and trying to keep up with it in a non-buggy fashion can be really, really difficult. Um, so yeah, no, the, the, the waters are getting a lot murkier, but I think that it does touch on, like that example does touch on something that I would say is something that is kind of classical UI problem is that you have some sort of stateful something. You have some sort of long running process that's just sitting there that's that's kind of moving with the user because the user is holding a lot of state in their head right as they're interacting with your application a lot of the context is stored in their head and so the ui needs to be able to dance with them and be kind of in lockstep with them and kind of mirror the context uh and their understanding of where they are in the system and so you, it has to they're usually very stateful uh, at least the ones that that we've been working on over over the past past years. And I think another core principle of UI engineering is responding to events mm-hmm. in a way that just doesn't happen as much in classical server engineering. Uh, yeah, you'll have to respond to a message or some kind of request every once in a while, but the level of responding to changes in state mm-hmm. and changes in how the human is interacting right, with the right. interface is at a whole nother level in right. UI engineering. It is really, it's a, it is a dance. Right. In the sense that like as the human moves their virtual hand throughout uh, your application, uh, you have to be tracking that state at all times. It's like it really shines itself there. If you compare a state machine for the server side and then a state machine for the client side, because we've built both and the client side is way more complex because there's just way more that's going on and possible things that can happen with an API. It's just it's like almost crud in a way with an mm-hmm. API and then on, on the UI side, we have to take a lot of user interaction and boil it down in order to persist that onto the API side. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's just more for us to take care of on the UI side yeah. and track, and it's just more complex. That's true. I think there might be some people who work primarily on the server out there being like, wait a minute! <laughs> At least on the server side, you have, you have one runtime that you can deal with. I mean, front-end developers have so much... Just so much to contain. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 
So, so in terms of like tracking that state, certainly one of the things that I think is also a unique problem for user interface is that you have to constantly be taking in those events that you're talking about, right? Like you're constantly having to update your state so that you keep in lockstep with where the user's at. And that can also be, you know, part of that information can be reacting to where other users are at besides just that user so that they can absorb that context. But yeah, so, so reacting to where they are, but then also radiating information constantly to the user so that they're both inputting at extremely high rate, but they're also receiving information. Like it's got to be extraordinarily high bandwidth, right? Like so that state that you're tracking has to be represented accurately at any given time. Um, and I think that's kind of where, you know, that's basically the core driving principle of like MVC, right? Is like you have this model and that represents your state and you have, you know, these events, which then update that state. And then you somehow manage to like instantaneously reflect that state change to the user in that like tight loop. And I feel like that pattern, despite it, people have tried to like bastardize it and or or just maybe not bastardize it but adapt it for their particular use case but it has been persistent it's like a cockroach man like always living never dying and like people are you know like i feel people try to assign new acronyms and new names for it but the fundamental like pattern is just so has proven to be effective over and over again and i would say that like if you're using mvc if you're building like a system with react or you're building a system with you know java swing like we did back in the day, like you're using the same basic pattern, even though the mechanics and the tools are completely different. But you have this kind of abstract representation, this model of either your state or your interactions. You can model a swipe or you can model a mouse move, but then you're basically reflecting that to the user and then taking in updates to that model. What's changed about the tooling? Say like Back when Frontside was primarily on Java, right. like this, that was the tool. And <laughs> right. It can be kind of a blunt instrument for some of the UI challenges we, we have now. What was working well in that arena and where have we come since then? I think there's just so many exciting things that have happened like since then. I think like especially like in the past like three years, because Swing, which was the Java UI framework, which was fabulous. I mean, just absolutely magnificent was at its core, a observation-based system. So you had a lot of observers, uh, and you'd basically have these models, and you would add a, you had a, your view was a separate object, but then you had your model. And this was kind of, this was definitely a watershed moment, at least for, you know, for me, it was like from inside your code, you never actually updated the view. You never said, I want to paint this thing. You never said, I want to like change this component tree. The only thing you did in, in reaction to events was set properties uh, on your model. But it was a mutable model. So you basically had your state, which was like a chalkboard. But your code, the, the, the key thing there was, you know, you could paint things in Swing. You could, you know, you could render things, but you never actually did. You had your components that always rendered off of a model. And you never called those imperative, like, draw this line here, draw this line there. You always updated your model and the view reacted to it. Uh, and that was like, that's like fundamental. And that's something that we still see today, right? But we were using mutable models, right? So the models themselves just, you know, got overwritten every single time. And the other thing is that they were observer-based. So you would observe this model or you observe properties on this model. And when those properties changed, you know, your view would, would re-render essentially. But it was 
more, I guess the, the paradigm was the view pulled data off the models. And I feel like we're moving to, in like the last three years, really with the advent of React, I think uh, really popularized this pattern. And now everybody else is like adopting this. The flow architecture? Well, yeah, it's the, the, the where you push, it's like a push model. So like you, instead of having the view pull from the model but via observation, you have your controller essentially push a new model onto the view. But I still think the basic components are there uh, where there's there's two things that I think have changed. One is this push model, the pull ver- via observation versus push from an event, like event generates a new model and pushes on it. And then the second thing, which is probably coupled to it, which is the idea of having your model be immutable. And the magic of that is that you are essentially unbraiding time from your model so that you, the programmer, are managing time instead of like the CPU clock, uh, which that sounds weird to say. Like, <laughs> I see you guys are like, what the hell are you talking about? <laughs> but that's fundamentally when you have something that's mutable, right? You're saying this is one object. It's the same identity, right? That you change over time. That you change over time, but you're writing it to it. Uh, whereas when you use a different model each time, you, the programmer, are essentially saying this is the same object. So you are managing identity of the object, not the computer. Does that make sense? So you're, you're saying here are a bunch of states, but like identity of like this thing is like an abstract concept. And I'm saying all these states represent the same object or same entity just over time. And so what you're doing is you're essentially decoupling time from your model. And that's, I think, a key innovation because then it gives you control over time. Uh, and so you can actually represent time however you want to. And that allows you to do things like history and uh, what's the time travel debugging, which I think is very different than undo redo. I think people conflate those unnecessarily, but like it allows you to do undo redo history type stuff because the timeline is like totally orthogonal now. Whereas if you have a mutable state, it's like, nope, like what this looks like at that time is absolutely coupled to right now. So yeah, I think those are key innovations, but I think that the, the fundamental pattern is still there. You have models, you have views, and you have like control code that manipulates it. I think the, the key thing that's happened over the last three years is that switch between having the views pull the model versus having the controller push it on there. Um, and so, for example, using essentially what amounts to like an observable interface, I think like observables as in like ES7 observables are one of the coolest like innovations to come around because that kind of allows you, it, uh, it gives you that convenience of having a single like reference point, but uh, access to all of the states that then you can, can react to it. Mm-hmm. Um, so anyway, that's like a long-winded thing of saying that I feel like those core entities are still there where you have this and then, you know, Everybody who like listens to me long enough will probably get tired of me saying this, but like I think that the primary one is the model, like understanding that, understanding like all right, because like your UI should be eventually derived from the data that you get, right? And it always should be because that mm-hmm. is the source of truth, right? And so everything else can flow from that. So understanding how it's gonna, how you're gonna represent it, whether you're representing it as speech whether you're representing it as like touch, whether you're representing visually, whether you're representing it with your ears. The understanding like what is it? Like this is, you know, there, there's still one thing that can be projected into a bunch of different media. And so like getting at that thing is the thing. So that was a long-winded way of saying like what is UI engineering and what is unique about it? But why would you want to plant your business in UI engineering? 
Right. That's a great question. Why is it a good business to be in and why is it a good like field to study? I think I'll quote uh, one of my favorite video games from my youth, which was Mortal Kombat 2. Uh, and at the very beginning, like they would say, you know, there is no knowledge that is not power. Right. That was like the big quote in Mortal Kombat 2. And I always remember thinking like, hmm, I'm pretty sure that the knowledge of like Kung Lao, I think, uh, being able to throw his hat by hitting some key sequence of uh, joystick and buttons. I don't think that's knowledge that's going to give me power. Sure enough, like uh, I don't think that knowing those key sequences really had uh, much power in them, but I still think it's a good saying. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Let me contradict. <laughs> yeah, I was always wondering what the that particular quote that the Mortal Kombat programmers really liked. But anyway, but I do. I actually I think that it's good to ha- understand it as a discipline, either here or in like your organization, because it gives you staying power because you understand that deep structure. So, for example, if the winds change and the tools get updated as they inevitably as will. As they inevitably will, right? We mentioned, we mentioned Java, we mentioned C, we mentioned like uh Rails, Ember, React, like backbound knockout, all those things, right? Those are transitory and they're ephemeral. But that knowledge isn't and it's a rock that you can cling on to like as kind of the changes storm over the landscape of the development community. And so if you understand that, your transition to the next thing will be a lot easier. And so I think that's the business value, at least from my perspective, is the ability to weather those storms and be like, oh, this is the same thing. It's got different clothes. It's got some nice updated patterns, but I understand fundamentally what's going on. And so, yeah, okay, I can work with it. I can find out what the things are. And it's kind of like, I would say there's, you know, they talk about there being uh, linguistic intelligence. So your second language that you learn is very hard. Your third one's a little bit easier, but then you have these people who speak like nine languages. And it's actually, once they learn, like go through language four or five, it's actually a lot easier for them to like pick up language. And you're like, how can you do the, how can they do that? Uh, and the answer is that they understand kind of the deep structure of language that's basically baked into our DNA. Every human being is born with it. There are patterns. Yeah, there. that there are patterns and they know them and they understand them and they are just absolutely have intimate knowledge of them. So, you know, the stuff that gets put on the window dressing, they can see beneath that with like x-ray vision and they can pick that up and work with it and run with it. And it becomes mostly just a exercise in learning vocabulary. And for as long as users will be interacting with the things that we build, there will always be UI engineering. So yep. there will always be somebody out there needing work. Exactly. And and do you want people who are fatigued by the, the JavaScript like churn, so to speak? I think it's a good, it's, you know, there are a lot of different strategies to like dealing with JavaScript fatigue, but a great one that I know of is to understand the core principles that are going on beneath the tools and realize that the tools really are, you know, the the icing on the cake, the tip of the iceberg, so to speak. So this kind of brings us back around full circle to what originally started this conversation in our office is how the front side brands itself is that we have for the past few years been doing almost exclusively Ember work. Mm -hmm. Um, And we love Ember as a tool and a framework that's done really good things for us and that we've enjoyed working with, but we want to not marry ourselves so tightly to a tool like that because we believe in the problems and the concepts more than the tools themselves. Mm -hmm. Right. Exactly. We want to be married to the problems, not the tools, because what we're really looking for 
is for when someone has a special interaction that they want to see made real, when they have a special product that they've, you know, maybe spent a lot of time and energy and thought and maybe money on crafting the user experience. We want those people to think of us because they say, now it's time to build the UI. Before there's an even an inkling of what the tool set will be, what the implementation strategy will be, like we want to be at the first and foremost of people's minds of regardless of what how it's going to pan out, we know that these folks can get it done. They are going to implement this thing that is going to be as good or not even as better than the way that we envisioned it. And so, yeah, I think that's important. And so, you know, we've been trying to transition towards that type of message. Yeah, the, the, we talked about how UI has like these things that are long lived. Mm -hmm. And one of the really long lived things, and I think it's going to be here for a long time, is JavaScript. And we, yeah. we do JavaScript very well. Um, so like everything we've been doing since, uh, I would say what, mid 2015 yeah. has been to abstract away from the UI framework and, and just base JavaScript libraries mm -hmm. because that can be portable to anywhere that can go from the server on node all the way to any UI framework that you want. And even, uh, native now with uh native script and angular yeah. or react native. Yeah. No, it's true. It's a, it is, it's amazing how portable JavaScript is. So like we, we are betting on JavaScript UI. Mm -hmm. And I have gotten a couple, uh, tweets from people because they knew like we were, uh, an Ember shop really. And, uh, whenever I started talking about React, you're like, well, are you just a React shop? And I was like, no, 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 no. no. <laughs> that, that, that's a big distinction we want to make him. We're a UI shop. Yeah. We want to be able to, uh, pick the framework or library that we see fit for your project. And it doesn't matter if it's an Ember or Angular or Vue or insert next year's framework because it's going to be written in JavaScript or a superset of JavaScript like TypeScript. Right, right, exactly. And we love all of those frameworks and we think that they have their individual trade-offs, but we have to like think about what those trade-offs are and also think about, you know, how can we share as much between like, for example, this Ember app, what, what can be shared between an Ember app and a React native app? And you might think, gosh, not much. But the answer is, my guess is probably, you know, really a lot, like most of it could be. That's kind of a radical idea. But at the same time, it's a very simple one and kind of seeing that pan out. And that's actually, I feel like we've actually been accomplishing that. And that's been something that we've seen. You know, this isn't just something that we've, you know, uh, smoke and mirrors. You know, this is what we've been doing and this strategy has been working and it's been paying off. Yeah, we do. We, uh, we do UI well and it doesn't matter what way we write the code. At the end of the day, we're still producing this interface that users interact with. And that's our bread and butter. That's what we do really well. The framework is just the thing that we're using. It's the flavor of the month, mm -hmm. year, whatever it might right. be to get the job done. But we we are betting on UI yep. and we do it well. I think it's actually a testament to a framework is how well it can adapt to plain JavaScript. So, you know, the way that we model these interactions really is with simple, immutable POJOs with well-known transitions to new states. That's like it. It's like secret magic sauce that is so... So simple. Remember earlier when I mentioned the state machines between the server side and the, <laughs> yeah. the client side? We model these as state machines, immutable state machines. Yeah. And they're so incredibly portable. And so what is, I, I think one of the things like Ember back in mid 2015 wasn't so great at 
using, at hosting these simple objects. Now in the early part of 2017, it actually is. It's very easy to write those things. You know, if you're using like Redux or React, they're obviously, you know, we're kind of more friendly to POJOs from the get-go. But I would say this, you still, I think there's value, clear value in not putting logic inside your reducers. Like I actually, let's see, like what is a reducer for? I actually think that you are better decoupling your JavaScript from a framework like Redux in the same way that like, you know, we've reaped huge benefits from decoupling all of like our state transition logic from any framework artifact inside of Ember. It meant that we, we like were ready to like drop in those interaction models into like React. It was like, boom, like there was very low friction. It was extremely low friction. Right. Because these interactions are in a base JavaScript library and the UI library is what's driving those interactions. Yeah. That's how you're actually talking to this underlying JavaScript uh, library that we wrote and abstracted away from the UI framework. Right. But we still need that UI framework that right. whatever you insert right. it into to play those actions. Yeah, exactly. And so you need, you definitely, you know, you need Redux to manage the current state to basically manage your concept of time, but maybe think twice about coupling your actual interaction model to a framework because is it going to be portable? This was a lot of pain that people had surrounding like uh, Active Record. I remember for you know people in the Ruby, there was this kind of aha moment in the Rails community. It's like, wait, we literally don't have to dump everything into Active Records. Uh, <laughs> then you know there was kind of this, I think this mass awakening followed by this mass sigh of relief. Once kind of people realize that they didn't ha like everything you do doesn't actually have to fit into a one of these kind of framework archetype objects, whether it be a reducer or a component or, um, you know, a, a route or whatever. Like you can actually, you know, if you have something that's truly separate, that's portable, like make it portable. And, you know, once people kind of started treating active record as just, oh, and I, when I want to persist something, this is what I use. <laughs> uh, you know, it things became a lot easier because you're 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 separating yourself from rails mm -hmm. and using ruby the language right, right and i think you said it perfect rob it's not to disparage any tools like it's you know they, the tool, tools are absolutely critical in fact the tools are most of the code like the amount of code that like for example an ember application provides to you is just massive and it's all very high value i mean some people will debate that but the point is they're all things that you're going to need to do but they're not things that are unique to your in, the, the interactions that you're trying to provide. Uh, and so, you know, I would actually like to see a version of Ember data that doesn't depend on the Ember object model. I think being able to really kind of separate that and, and have it be something that, you know, could be like, it's pretty amazing library and saves an enormous amount of time. It would be fantastic. But only Ember can ever use it. But only Ember can ever use it. But it is, it is definitely a common problem. It's something that we miss. Like the, the 90% use cases that it covers, like, boom, is something that we miss when we're, you know, when we're working in, in, in other frameworks. So I actually think there is one more thing to touch on. And this is really what separates, I think, what we do from a lot of maybe agencies that are heavy on the design side, but not super heavy on kind of the UI side. Uh, and I think it's a major differentiator uh, between kind of the UX and the UI. Obviously, UI is very implementation centric as opposed to, you know, vision centric. I think, you know, a good comparison is, you know, architect making blueprints versus, you know, the builder that actually has to 
construct the skyscraper. Make it real. Yeah, it has to make it real. And that's what we do is make it real. And, and there's an engineering component to it. So while you know we have a very heavy focus on design and beauty and elegance and you know smooth interaction with the user and we kind of study a lot of key user experience principles there is a component to ui engineering which you know supersedes framework supersedes design which i well, sorry supersedes but mean it it's present it's ubiquitous and that is bringing to bear all of the industry best practices around making quality robust software. And I think that's like I think that's an important thing to point out, right? Is that like that's also something that just I mean we it kind of just goes without saying, but I think it's important to mention is that like all those things, if you want to have all those good things and if you want to have good models and good views and controllers and you want to work with a bunch of different frameworks, it's all for naught. If you're not using all of those things that keep quality software quality. If that makes sense, right? Having continuous integration, having test suites, having continuous deployment and thinking about all the operations surrounding the software. Because ultimately the UI is software just like any other system. And this is something that we could go off and talk about for ages, right? Is like how to test UI software. Cause there are when you're, you've got these big stateful applications, they have their own kind of unique testing. But there's a lot of engineering problems here that are to be solved. Right, right. And, you know, I think it's important to be every bit as that. So anyway, that's all to say. I think I think that's about it on this subject. Um, it's just been kind of bouncing around the, the walls here, like kind of as we kind of think, like, who are we? Uh, what is it that we do? Like, what would you say that you do here? <laughs> we, we have existential midlife crises. Yeah. That's, <laughs> that's what we do here. Right, right. But yeah, it's so, you know, just kind of UI engineering, man. It's taking those UX dreams, right? You know, and, and it's bringing them to life. You know, it's making sure that they're scalable, that they're maintainable, that they're testable, that like all of those things can become real regardless of the tool. And live long. And live long, right? That's the hard part. We can throw something together and, and match the comp. Right. Yeah. <laughs> but will it continue to match the comp in three months? Yeah. Is the question. Yeah. So hopefully so. We think so. I think we, I think we hit that mark. Absolutely. But it's the engineering. That's the tough part. That's the hard, that's the hardest part. Yeah. <laughs> making it happen and making it sustainable. All right. Well, thanks uh, everybody for listening. Uh, we are going to be back next week. We've got some some pretty neat folks uh, stopping by, so uh, be sure to check it out. 